This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, senior New South Wales ministers rally behind Premier Perrottet. We'll hear how bad blood within the party could have sparked the Nazi costume scandal. Also, the late Cardinal George Pell rails against Pope Francis and a process of church reform. We're joined by Susan Pascoe, who's involved in the global consultation. If there was one message that was in every single submission, is that Catholics want a more welcoming and inclusive and participatory church. As Pope Francis says, the church is not a museum. And almost a year since the Lismore floods, some residents are still waiting to hear if the government will buy back their homes. We just keep being told to be patient, and I don't think the outside world really sees how a great proportion of Lismore is living in caravans. Given information is really taking its toll. Thanks for your company. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet remains in damage control after revealing he wore a Nazi uniform to his own 21st birthday party. The Premier apologised yesterday but continues to deny his public confession was triggered by internal party tensions, which have been brewing ahead of the March election. While Mr Perrottet insists his leadership is safe, others say his position as leader of the most populous state remains under a cloud. Gavin Coote reports. A day after revealing he wore a Nazi costume at his own 21st birthday, Dominic Perrottet fronted another press conference, again apologising for his actions in 2003. I've had um, a number of colleagues contact me um, over the course of the night and um, I appreciate their support, but ultimately it's not about me in relation to this. It's about the, the, the hurt that the mistake I made caused many people across our community and I'm terribly sorry for that. Mr Perrottet was adamant that internal party ructions had nothing to do with the timing of his admission. I think I've made it quite clear. I think I've made it quite clear. This is about a mistake that I made. This is a mistake that I made and I did it. I'm not interested in other commentary around it. I'm truly sorry for the mistake that I made and I'll do everything I can uh, to ensure that the hurt in communities across New South Wales is relieved. The Premier was flanked by senior Liberal colleagues, including Health Minister Brad Hazard. He's an amazing guy, he's done an incredible job, and that's all that I'm prepared to say, and I'm prepared to back him 100%. Others in the Liberal Party are worried political rivals are out to derail Dominic Perrottet's career. Lee Evans holds the southern Sydney seat of Heathcote. Ultimately, it's not good for New South Wales, it's not good for the community. Basically, dirty laundry being put out there, all this stuff like families. You don't go out and and broadcast squabbles you've had inside, you keep it to yourself. It's been revealed the issue first came to light when Transport Minister David Elliott raised it. His relationship with the Premier has been strained in recent weeks over the New South Wales government's plans to introduce a card to help stop problem gambling. Mr Elliott has been critical of the plan and phoned the Premier on Tuesday night to raise the Nazi costume issue. Many in the Jewish community have been distressed by the revelation, which comes just two months out from a state election. Deputy Labor leader Prue Carr says it's up to the public to decide whether Mr Perrottet should be forgiven. Yet again, we have another internal Liberal Party brawl playing out in the public. This government cannot govern itself. How can it govern the state? Alexandra Smith is state political editor with the Sydney Morning Herald, who thinks the Premier's revelation and subsequent apology was entirely triggered by friction within his own party. There is no doubt that there are some serious 
tensions within the right wing of the Liberal Party. Obviously, that's the faction from which Dominic Perrottet comes from. And there has been a lot of unhappiness largely around the pre-selection process. Just as we saw federally, pre-selections were hugely problematic for the New South Wales division of the Liberal Party. And the same thing has played out again ahead of the state election. And so if he is able to hold on until March, what do you think this means for his government's re-election chances? Well, it's very difficult. It was going to be difficult for him anyway. Obviously, they're asking for another four years. Um, They've already had 12. So there is a lot of sense that perhaps voters will just have the it's time kind of view when they go to cast their ballot. I think his big risk is still whether any of his own people, his own people in the right-wing faction uh, want to come after him. Some of them are saying to me, we'd rather lose the election than have him as Premier on the other side. So that's how bitter it's got. Someone's described it for me as savage. So I think his big risk is also what some of his own might do to him. While Dominic Perrottet remains in damage control, some believe he might be able to survive this scandal. Michael Yabsley was a minister in the Griner New South Wales government and a federal treasurer for the Liberal Party. I don't think what he did was a a, a sackable offence or a, a hanging offence, but you know that that really is in the in the hands of others. What it does remind us is that in politics, I mean, you you pay a disproportionate price. I mean, if he were off busying himself with a, a career as an investment banker or a lawyer or a school teacher or whatever, there would barely be passing interest in this. But as we know, being in public life brings into play. A, a whole different set of ground rules. Dominic Perrottet says he's not aware of any photos of him in the Nazi uniform. Gavin Coote reporting. Even in death, the late Cardinal George Pell continues to make waves throughout the Catholic world, having penned two documents fiercely critical of the direction of the church under Pope Francis. Pell has been outed as the author of an explosive memo that condemned the current papacy as a catastrophe. And in what's thought to be his final article, published by The Spectator today, Cardinal Pell denounced the Vatican's plans for what's called a synod on synodality, which is a kind of global process of consultation amongst Catholics, calling it a toxic nightmare, which produced one of the most incoherent documents ever sent out from Rome. Well, Susan Pascoe is a member of the Vatican Methodology Commission for the Synod on Synodality, and she joined me earlier. Susan Pascoe, thanks for your time. As simply as you could, can you explain the work that you're doing for the Vatican and what it aims to achieve for the Catholic Church? Well, it's a synod. A synod normally involves some form of consultation on a particular topic, and then the bishops consider what came through the consultation. They advise the Pope and the Pope responds. What's unique about this one is that Somewhat strangely, it's called a synod on synodality. So it's an initiative by the Pope to fully explore the ways in which the church can more actively involve all of the Catholic community, not just the clerical members. Right. So we now have this scathing critique of that work penned by George Pell before he died and published by The Spectator magazine. He describes the work of you and your colleagues as contributing to a toxic nightmare, a potpourri of new age goodwill that ultimately covers up the centrality of Christ. What's your response? Well, first of all, you'd have to say, what does that mean? It's very hard when language is that colourful to actually get to the the base of the meaning. 
He appears to have a problem with the concept itself of enlarging the tent, and he points, for example, to what he calls neo-Marxist jargon about identity, marginalisation, LGBTQ, to name a few. So if I explain what is in, in contained in that the document that was the result of the global synthesis, what is written into that document, apart from the the concept of the tent is simply a faithful synthesis of what Catholics around the world have said. And it's really important to note that in addition to that coming through consultations in parishes and, and dioceses all around the world, um, before it was sent to Rome, each um, bishop's conference had to endorse it. And then you have one person critiquing it. Yeah, so Is it just I, one I, person? Because he also claims that regularly worshipping Catholics everywhere do not endorse the present synod findings. That's not consistent with the response that's been received. But could I return to the concept of the, the tent? Mm. Many Catholics, baptised Catholics, feel outside the tent. So if you're divorced and remarried, well, technically you're not allowed to receive communion. Mm. Um, if you're um, gay um, or in a gay relationship, you're technically at odds with church teaching and so on. If there was one message that was in every single submission is that Catholics want a more welcoming and inclusive and participatory church. Mm. And this that really be- is at the heart of the, the clash, isn't it, between conservative members of the clergy like George Pell, who see it as their role to defend morality as it has stood in the past, and on the other side, Catholics who believe the church must change with the times. Why does the church need to change? Well, I think... Uh, what you see through the the document for the continental stage is an expression of, uh, to use the Vatican II language, you know, the, the joys and aspirations, the hopes and fears of Catholics. And if we go back to Vatican II, uh, the, there was the notion of the church opening itself to the modern world. In fact, John uh, the 23rd used the notion of throwing open the windows and that's part of the, the dilemma, I think, that not everybody accepts Vatican II, which, as Pope Francis has pointed out, is part of the magisterium or the teaching of the church. So not to accept it is not to accept the teaching of the church. This week, the world has lost a very powerful and very conservative Catholic leader. Will that in itself, in your view, influence the direction of the church, especially under a pope who's considered to be at the more progressive end of the spectrum? Look, it's hard to say because the process that we're going to through is one that I, I think has enormous integrity and that process of discernment is one that's seeking to find where the consensus is, of course consistent with church teaching, but as Pope Francis says, the church is not a museum and tradition is a living element of the church. So, you know, that, that we have to keep that in mind as well. That's Susan Pascoe. She's a member of the Vatican Methodology Commission for the Synod on Synodality. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. Ahead, Australian pubs struggle to serve up traditional meals as a potato shortage bites into frozen chips. 
Nearly 7 out of 10 Australians lived in natural disaster zones last year, according to startling new analysis from Federal Treasury. Consecutive floods, mainly in eastern Australia, wiped $5 billion from the national economy in 2022. Treasurer Jim Chalmers warns the budget burden of climate disasters, increasing in frequency because of climate change, is going to get worse. John Daly reports. All right, thank you. As waters receded from WA's worst flood on record, community members in the Kimberley town of Derby met overnight to come to grips with the destruction left behind. Elsa Archer is from Derby's local Chamber of Commerce and this latest flood disaster has shocked her. In all my years here, I have never seen anything like this. I've seen it flood before, but it's only been a few weeks and it's been open. You know, it's washed... Um, hole in the road and that type of thing but never to this capacity never. Obviously it's going to cost a lot, a lot of money and so hopefully if you know, they're going to as, as was said in the meeting, they're going to tick it all up and the government are going to have to pay the bill. The community at Fitzroy Crossing is also realising the extent of the damage. The town's main bridge collapsed into the Fitzroy River cutting a crucial transport route across the Kimberley for what's expected to be months. Kandula Harat manages several local businesses, including the IGA and Fitzroy River Lodge. He says the clean-up began two days ago. It's a massive clean-up. Mm. You can see, start to see the place and you can't even recognise some places. It's like, oh, it's not the lodge anymore. So some places are, you know, even like a landscape change and because of this sand. Do you have the resources there, the equipment to, to, to carry out these repairs and, and, and this recovery? Not much, not much resources at all. That's why we're asking from the uh, different force and the... Um, Pretty much the government also, we need the resources, we need the big backhauls. So much of like trees washed away, structures, buildings, houses washed away. That's the dead animals everywhere and the smelly and the flies everywhere and the, yeah. And some dead animals we can't even move and because they're, they're big cattle. While WA's Kimberley is realising the extent of this latest flood disaster, Federal Treasury has calculated the damage bill from last year's record floods in eastern Australia to be $5 billion. Treasurer Jim Chalmers visited the New South Wales town of Lismore today to check in on recovery efforts. He says the economic cost of climate disasters last year was immense. It's a pretty remarkable stat. Uh, that something like seven in every ten Australians lived in a natural disaster declared area in 2022. Uh, And we are primarily focused on the human cost of these natural disasters and the cost to communities, but there's also an economic cost and a cost to the budget as well. He warns it's only going to get worse as the effects of climate change intensify. Natural disasters are happening more and more frequently, partly as a consequence Uh, of climate change and so we do need to get better uh, not just at responding to natural disasters but doing what we can to make communities more resilient in the first place. Professor Mark Howden is from the ANU's Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions and he's also the Vice Chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He says what's now a severe and unusual hit to the economy will become the norm in the future. The likely impact uh, in Australia is going to be several times more in terms of percentages of GDP uh, than our historical experience. And so uh, what used to be an unusual climate hit uh, on our economy is likely to become much bigger and much more frequent in the future. And across the globe, that could be, if we exceed four degrees, it could be something like around about $23 trillion a year uh, in terms of impact. And that's around about 7% of the global GDP. 
Federal Treasury noted that most of the costs last year came from lost activity in mining, agriculture, retail and construction, but also that the floods had worsened inflation by forcing up food prices. Mark Howden says adaptation in vulnerable supply chains and industries should be among the top priorities. Well, I think we need to look at the vulnerability of different sectors and value chains and start to map out how we can reduce those vulnerabilities. So that's what we call climate adaptation. And if we go back a dozen years or so, Australia was at the forefront of of thinking and practice in terms of climate adaptation but a lot of that's dropped off the radar over the last decade or so. So I think we need to pick that back up. That's ANU Professor Mark Howden, John Daly reporting. Almost a year since record-breaking flooding ripped through the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, a buyback scheme for the worst-hit residents is grinding into action. 130 households have been told they're eligible for buybacks from the government, but many more are still waiting for news and worry the scheme is moving too slowly. Here's Nell Whitehead. Dolores is her name. She was built in 1925-ish, I think. Marilyn Schofield's home sits at the confluence of two rivers in Lismore. And unlike several others on her street, it's still standing. She's on, you can see here, she's got steel posts and then she has steel girders that run across, which is why she's still standing. And raised up. Raised up, so I think the floor height is 12.6 according to council records. So that's significantly high. Its top floor had never gone underwater until Lismore's record-breaking floods last February. Marilyn, who's 51, was rescued by the SES. And since then, she and her son have been living in the wreckage. So as you can see, I haven't got walls in most rooms. It's makeshift walls. There was a a council election and so there's lots of core flutes uh, laying around. It was really cold. I had to make makeshift walls. So I just stapled the core flutes to the walls to try and keep the heat in. Recently, she was told she's eligible for a buyback under an $800 million reconstruction fund. The Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation has begun the buyback process for 130 homes in the riskiest areas. Marilyn says that makes her one of the lucky ones, but she still doesn't know how much the government will offer her or when. And we just keep being told to be patient. And I don't think the outside world really sees how a great proportion of Lismore is living. I'm one of the lucky ones. I've got a roof over my head, but other people are homeless in caravans, living in their houses that are in much worse state than this. So not being given information is really taking its toll on this community. Many other flood victims are still in limbo, waiting to hear if they're eligible at all. Eventually, the buyback scheme will purchase up to 2,000 flood-affected properties and pay owners to raise up or retrofit thousands more. Here's Lismore resident Harper Dalton. So I'm still sitting here today, months on, not knowing whether I'm going to be offered a buyback or not. And it's very hard to plan any type of future or security around that. Then there's the question of where to go. The fund will pay homeowners at pre-flooding values for their properties. But even then, residents like Harper say they may not be able to afford to leave the floodplain because homes on higher ground are so much more expensive. He bought his house by the river for just over $200,000. And I don't have enough money with pre-flood value to go and purchase anything else here. Everything here outside of flood is over $650,000. 
I don't see any future to stay in the area. I don't know any other home. Like, I've lived here my whole life. So where do you go? And what are you supposed to do? David Witherden is head of the Northern Rivers Reconstruction Corporation. He says the reconstruction program will take years to complete. So it's just the enormity of the, the, this event. The geographic area it covers here in the Northern Rivers in terms of the program, a really enormous area. So there's some really significant complexity in, in rolling out a program of uh, this scale. And, you know, our expectation is that work through to completion will take in, in the order of five years. But everybody who is eligible for a buyback in the Northern Rivers should know by the middle of this year. The Reconstruction Corporation plans to make new land available on safer ground to increase the supply of affordable housing for flood victims. But that might not come soon enough for Marilyn Schofield. She says she may have to buy a new home on the floodplain, only in a slightly less dangerous area. So the only option someone like me has really is to buy in a safer place where it might flood raise the house, make it more resilient. We can't We can't afford to be out of flood. Even with a buyback, she's likely to face flooding in the future. Nell Whitehead reporting. Well, five months after FBI agents raided the home of former US President Donald Trump, the nation's attorney general has appointed a special counsel to investigate Joe Biden for his handling of classified documents. President Biden, who criticised Donald Trump for his actions last August, has now been forced to acknowledge that sensitive material was found at his home in Delaware, in his garage, no less. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a locked garage, okay? So it's not like you're sitting out in the street. But anyway, yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but as I said earlier this week, people know I take classified documents and classified material seriously. Well, now congressional Republicans are demanding to see visitor logs for the president's homes, arguing the discovery of the files is a national security risk. I spoke earlier with The Washington Post's opinions editor-at-large, Michael Duffy. Michael Duffy, thanks for your time. What do we know of the documents that Joe Biden had in his possession? Well, we don't know much. The documents are classified, I presume, various levels. I think if the White House is smart, they will do everything they can in the coming days to at least explain what it is he kept. They could declassify them if they're if they're not controversial or, or sensitive. But I don't think they can just sit there and say, as they have today... Uh, we're cooperating with the Justice Department. I think they're going to have to show a little more leg on what the documents were. So uh, that's a long way of saying no idea, but I think we're going to find out soon. We do know where they were found and the fact that some of the documents were actually found in Joe Biden's garage surely must make this a little bit more serious for a man who has said that he takes classified documents very seriously. Yeah, I don't know what garages are like in Australia, but these are not the most secure uh, structures in the United States. Uh, (laughs) He did say that's where he keeps his prized Corvette, so therefore it must be secure. I'm not sure that's a great line of defense. I think the 
complication here for Biden is that the Democrats gave Trump a lot of trouble for keeping him in various places at Mar-a-Lago. It's fair game to criticize Biden for putting them in the garage. There's now a special counsel investigating uh, the Biden document situation, just as there is a special counsel investigating uh, the Trump handling of classified material. Any chance, I think, that this Justice Department in the Biden administration is going to prosecute Donald Trump for mishandling of the papers is probably now down the drain. So this is not a legal problem for Joe Biden, but it is a political one because it really does suggest that he's no more responsible than than Trump was. When you say that the prospect of charges against Trump are now down the drain, why is that? Because if a special counsel, a separate special counsel is investigating both of these matters, shouldn't that be independent of of any kind yeah, of should, uh, but, interference? But, yeah, it should be. But I just don't think the American government was likely to prosecute Donald Trump for document mishandling. I don't think we want to go after former presidents for that. And I don't think uh, that would have been an easy case to make because he probably didn't pack the stuff himself. And I would say one more thing here, which is that Trump's constant appearance in the aftermath of that famous FBI search of Mar-a-Lago really put Trump back in the news and back in front of voters as they headed into the polls that fall. That was really damaging for the Republicans, probably helped minimize the Democrats' losses. So I always felt that that was a kind of a gift that came along and and they'd already taken that trick and that there was they didn't seem very likely to prosecute Trump for that. They were much more interested and are in, in his criminal culpability for the insurrection of 2021. So to me, that was never going to be a big turning point. And I don't think this one is going to be a big legal problem for Joe Biden either. But I do think this is a very bad story for the White House at a moment when they kind of had the other party on the defensive. And this will really turn the tables. Just more broadly, Hillary Clinton kept highly classified information on her private server. Now we know Donald Trump, Joe Biden. Does this all speak to a cavalier approach by American leaders to the nation's most sensitive and valuable information? You know, what I think it speaks to is we classify too many documents. It's almost like it must not be worth reading if it doesn't have a stamp on it. Certainly you're right. Obviously, politicians of both parties don't take this stuff seriously enough. But it's also, uh, there's always some kind of tug of war between outgoing commanders-in-chief and the archivists who both sides kind of think the documents belong to them. There's always a fight. Oftentimes, classified materials involved. Michael Duffy, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's the Washington Post's opinions editor at large, Michael Duffy. Well, whether it's a chicken palmy or palmer, a steak or a pie, a side serve of chips is for most an essential element of any Australian pub meal. But a potato shortage has forced some kitchens to drop the humble chip and get creative. Months of wet weather in key potato-growing regions have impacted supply, and that's hurting farmers and processors too. Alexandra Humphreys reports. The King Island Hotel off the northwest of mainland Tasmania usually offers its chicken parmigiana with chips and salad. This week, operations manager Hayley Crofts says they've been forced to make a controversial switch. Most people like onion rings and they're still deep fried. Ms Crofts says she can't source any frozen chips at the moment and even if she could, they've doubled in price. The price we're paying for chips because, of course, we have to add on freight for everything on King Island 
Um, yeah, it's just not sustainable, um, so we thought we'd go with something else. Major supermarket chains are also limiting the number of bags of chips customers can buy. Ruby Daly is the business manager of Daly Farms on Tasmania's east coast. She says there's one clear reason for the shortage. Rain. <laughs> plenty and plenty of rain. Too much water. It makes both planting and harvesting virtually impossible. When there's too much water, there we can't access crops. So, you know, quite often we will want to um, plant paddocks or we'll want to harvest paddocks but machinery just does not move in when it's this wet um, and also you know they just rot out in the ground. She estimates the farm lost more than 2,000 tonnes of potatoes last year as a result. Our factory facility was closed um, not having a single potato through the factory for eight weeks you know so when we're solely reliant on potatoes you know, that, that hurts massively. Hugh Christie from the Tasmanian Farmers and Graziers Association says many farmers were forced to plant weeks later than normal due to the rain, and that could present issues at the other end of the cycle. We won't know exactly what the final yields are going to be until they're out of the ground, and with a late planting comes a late harvest, and the challenge with that will be if we get a if we get a wet autumn, it will introduce a whole another range of challenges. Mr Christie says the shortage has been compounded by the fact that key growing areas across three states have suffered with bad weather. If you look at particularly things like frozen chips, the core production areas are through southeast South Australia, um, areas of Victoria and Tasmania, and that whole area was experiencing challenges around um, sowing time. So the redundancies that are normally there with a number of supply areas um, aren't there because they've all been hit by similar climatic conditions. With fewer potatoes available to be turned into frozen chips, Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Tasmanian Secretary John Short is worried about the flow-on effects for hundreds of workers at the state's two processing facilities. If there's not enough potatoes to process, then obviously there's, there's probably a couple of different options. One is to import some of the potatoes from the mainland uh, to do the processing. Uh, but the other, I suppose the other possibility is, is reduction in production. He's concerned retailers might look to import frozen chips from overseas. Alexandra Humphreys reporting. That's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by David Sargent and Nick Dan. I'm David Lipson. Samantha Donovan will be with you for the next two weeks. Starting Monday, I'm off on break. Thanks for your company, though. Have a great night. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.